Genesis chapter 38, Judah's sin and his lineage. Genesis 38. And it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited, visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Herah. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he named him Er. Then she conceived again and bore a son and named him Onan. And she bore still another son and named him Shelah. And it was at Keziv that she bore him. Now Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. Now after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And it was told to Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He said, Therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, Moreover, Will you give a pledge until you send it? And he said, What pledge shall I give you? And she said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of her place, saying, Where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enayim? But they said, There has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, There has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, Let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Now, it was about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. And behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law, saying, 
I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. And it came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. And afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. Amen. First, an explanation of the passage, and then some truths and lessons we can learn from it. Firstly, when we read this chapter, it's at the beginning, or right after chapter 37, which begins the narrative of Joseph, the historical narrative from chapter 37 to 50 in the book of Genesis. And many people wonder why this incident in the life of Judah is right here, right after introducing Joseph. Well, it seems that it's here for a couple of reasons. One, to contrast Judah with Joseph. Because in the next chapter, Joseph will also be tempted because he'll be a young man, 17-year-old man, and in the house of Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife will tempt him to commit adultery. He resists the temptation, but here Judah does not resist illicit sin, illicit sexual sin. Joseph does, and he continues in his godliness. Joseph is consistently godly from chapters 37 to 50. In contrast, Judah shows his ungodliness, his sin, even his sexual sin, here in this chapter. There is this contrast. But, though Joseph practiced righteousness, he still underwent affliction. In the case of Judah, he practiced wickedness, and he comes across this dilemma, this problem of bearing or uh, begetting sons through his daughter-in-law. But also, God used Joseph and his righteousness to save the people. In this case, God uses Judah's evil to save the people. What, what do we mean by Judah's evil? Well, Judah committed evil by committing fornication with a prostitute in his mind, but in actuality was his daughter-in-law. That's the case with Judah. But God will use the offspring, that is Perez, to be... Not only Judah's descendant, but an ancestor of David, who is the ancestor of Christ. God will use that man, Perez, the son of Judah, as an ancestor of Christ. And even Tamar as an ancestress of Christ in this way. God uses evil to bring about good also. He uses good to bring about good, and he uses evil to bring about good according to God's purpose according to whatever His will is, not only for everyone, but even for particular persons. This incident in chapter 
38 is most likely after the sale of Joseph in the previous chapter, after Joseph was sold as a slave. Now, Judah and the others go back home to their place in Hebron. We know it's Hebron according to chapter 37, 14. So from Hebron, which is in the south, in Judah, he goes to in the later tribe of Judah, that territory. It says in verse 38, at that time, at the time after the sale of Joseph, Judah went down or departed from his brothers. He visits a certain Adulamite, Hira. Now this Hira is his friend. We're told later he went to see his friend. And there in verse 2, while he's visiting Hira, it says here in verse 2 that there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he took her and went into her. Judah sees while he's visiting his friend Hira, uh, a woman, the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name is Shua. The man's name is Shua. The father's name is Shua. The daughter's name is unnamed here. She's not named at all here. So Judah marries a Canaanitess. It, in some interpretations, they take the word Canaanite to mean merchant. Now, now there is a couple of times in the Old Testament where Canaanite does mean merchant because the Canaanites were living on the coast and they were known to be merchants at the sea and seafarers. So they were merchants in that way. So it became a synonym for that. However, in most contexts and likely right here, it doesn't mean merchant. It means Canaanite. It's talking about the ethnicity of the man and his daughter. So Judah presumably marries an unbeliever. Most likely that's what he did. That's why the text tells us a Canaanite, a certain Canaanite. Well, Judah then has three sons in verses 3 to 5. The first son is named Er, and it looks like he named her, uh, he named the son Er. In the next two sons, 4 and 5, she, the wife, names them. And the second one is Onan. And then in verse 5, the third one is Shelah. In that order, Er, Onan, and Shelah. And these places that we read about, um, Adullam, and then here, uh, Kazev, and other places that we'll read about, like in verse 14, Anayim and Timnah, these are all just a few miles apart from each other in this southern area, mostly in the southern area of the land of Canaan, later in the tribe of Judah. Verse 6. Now Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Tamar is the one woman named here, and she's the most prominent woman because she ends up being the one who bears Perez. Now, Tamar was married to the firstborn. However, verse 7 says that Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so the Lord took his life. 
He was evil, so God killed him before his time. Before living 70 or 80 years old, as is typical, he didn't live that long. He died in his youth. He died because he was evil. God punished him. It doesn't say what his sin was, but it does clearly say he was evil and God punished him for his evil by taking his life away from him. Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. And Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So it came about that when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. But what he did was evil in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life also. In verses 8 to 10, the second-born Onan is told by Judah, rightfully so, to marry his brother's wife. Because now Tamar is a widow. And to keep the family name and the inheritance in the family and the lineage in the family, it was right for the widow to marry the brother, the surviving brother, next in line, which was Onan. This is what was done in the book of Genesis and then later in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. Deuteronomy 25, 5 to 10. Moses writes about this law. Deuteronomy 25, 5. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And it shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the uh, go up to the gate to the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He is not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare... Thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And in Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. Well, this is what Judah, Onan, and even Tamar understand. That's why Tamar was willing to marry Onan. Even though it's... She, she, being a widow, normally speaking, might be free to go and marry elsewhere, marry another man. She, however, knows that it, the right thing to do is to stay in that family and marry the next brother in line. So she does so. She does so. And Onan, he understands this because it says in Genesis 38 verse 9 that... 
he knew the offspring would not be his. The firstborn would belong to his brother, and the line, the lineage would continue on with the brother's lineage based on the son born of Onan and Tamar. He knew that, but he refused to love his brother, to do right in his family. Not, he also refused to love his father and even to love Tamar properly. He just enjoyed this pleasure without the obligation. He did wrong to waste his seed on the ground. And he did wrong to not give offspring to his brother. He did those two things wrong. He, he wasted or spilled his seed on the ground and he did not give offspring to his brother. And God, it says in verse 10, considers it evil, so God took his life also. It was evil. Well, verse 11, Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Notice this, After the death of the secondborn, she's still called daughter-in-law. Why? Notice also, we'll see, she's called that um, later in verse 24. Verse 24, your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot because there was this law and they knew the law. Verse 11 will indicate it. And that is legally Shelah was next in line and legally they were bound to each other. They just weren't married yet, but legally they were bound to each other. That's why the text in verse 11 calls her daughter-in-law and even later on in the passage. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. It doesn't say why exactly he sends her away to her father's house, which is not an, uh, an unusual custom. For example, Leviticus 22.13 mentions the widow going back to live with the father, going to the father's house. And also in Ruth 1, 6 to 13, Ruth 1, 6 to 13, Naomi sends or calls on Ruth and Orpah to go back to their mother's house, to go back to the parents' house. So that was done, but since they were legally bound to each other, why did she not stay in proximity until it was right, the right time to marry? I think the answer is it itself in verse 11, because it says, For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. He was afraid that if Shelah also married Tamar, that Shelah might also die like his older two brothers died. He, Judah, is putting blame on Tamar as though that she is some wicked woman or some superstitious uh, kind of thought about her that whoever she marries is, di is dying er early in life, so nobody should marry her. Nobody, at least in my family, should marry her. So he is 
not actually telling the truth about waiting for Shelah to grow up. He's lying. He's lying and pretending. We also notice in verse 14, for she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. Judah did not want Shelah to marry her. That's why he delayed. And that's why this predicament was presented to Tamar. Instead of blaming his sons, he blames Tamar. Judah does. Verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, she was daughter, the wife of Judah died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. After a considerable time, Judah's own wife, she dies. It doesn't say how much or how many days this considerable time was, but it was a few years. It was likely that the oldest heir was about 20 years old and the other brothers were at least a year or two younger than he. So some time had passed, perhaps four or five years, maybe seven, no more than 10 years had passed. And then Judah's wife dies. And sufficient time has passed, therefore, for Shelah, even if he's the youngest, if he were only 15, some, some time had passed for him to be old enough to marry Tamar. But that did not happen yet, as we see in verse 14. She had not been given to him as a wife. He had grown up, and that marriage, the consummation of the marriage, had not occurred. Legally, they were bound. Um, they were husband and wife. But formally, actually, it had not happened yet. Verse 12 says also that Judah went up to his sheep shears at Timnah, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Now what happens when sheep are sheared? Usually it's a time of festivities. They celebrate because it's a good time to benefit from the flocks that you have. To shear the sheep, it's a good time to benefit from them, so people celebrate. This is given as an example in 1 Samuel 25, 1 Samuel 25, and verse 2. We'll read verse 2 and also verse 8. 1 Samuel 25, 2. We have another rich man. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich, and he had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats, and it came about while he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now, the man's name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail, and the woman was intelligent and beautiful in appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his dealings, and he was a Calebite. Okay, it's time to shear the sheep. Look at verse 8. When David sends his men to Nabal... It says in verse 8, Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a festive 
day. Please give whatever you find at hand to your servants and to your son, David. The festive day was the day to shear the sheep, or that time to shear the sheep. And they would normally celebrate. Well, at this festive time, after mourning the death of his wife, Judah goes with his friend to have a good time. And what do you expect when people have a good time? Especially men have a good time, but even men and women. When they're going to try to have a good time, there's lots of food, lots of meat, and lots of liquor, right? Lots of wine. So meat and wine and lots of friends, men and women, what do you expect? Unless you have self-control, you expect sin. So Judah is going in that frame of mind because he's overcoming the death of his wife, mourning for her. Now he's thinking of positive and happy things. So 13, and it was told to Tamar, behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. He's called father-in-law. The people, someone, announces to Tamar that this is the case. It doesn't say why they tell her. However, they probably know what the circumstances are. Probably widespread knowledge of what is expected, what is legal, what was promised, and what naturally happens. So that's why they tell her. She takes advantage of this situation. 14. 14 to 19. So she removed her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. She removes her widow's garments. Then she takes a veil, wraps herself, sits there at the gateway on the road to Timnah where Judah is headed. And why does she take this action? Because Shelah had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. Her concern is a greater concern for her husband, her first husband, than Judah's concern for his son. She has a greater concern than he does. Now, she's approaching it by becoming a prostitute temporarily, so that is ignoble on her part, but this is something that she devises because there's no way way to escape her circumstances and to do what is the right thing to do. There may also be an indication that Judah, Jacob, Tamar, that they all knew about the lineage of Christ. We'll see more about that at the end in verses 27 to 30. That it's likely that they were anticipating the lineage of Christ. After all, Moses is writing this about 400 years after this incident, maybe 300 years after this incident. If Moses is writing about this hundreds of years later, why is he recording this? Why is he recording these incidents? Because Moses knows something. 
And we will see also that in the days of Ruth and Naomi, even they know something, which is about 500 years after Moses. They know of these circumstances and they know of the lineage, the issue of the lineage. Where is the genealogy to be traced from Adam, Noah, Abraham to Christ? How is it going to be traced? So, keeping that in mind, what does she do? Uh, And what does he do? Verse 15. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. This means that the harlots, at least in that time and in that location, they would cover their face. That's why she wore a veil in verse 14. Harlots, to protect their identity, to avoid shame, they would cover their face. That was the practice of harlots at that time, in that place. It says that in 15, for she had covered her face. That's why he assumed she was a harlot, a prostitute. Notice there, when Judah saw, when he sees, now if her face is covered, and according to verse 14, she covered herself with the veil and wrapped herself, in Judah's mind, in Judah's eyes, he doesn't even see the face or the form of the woman. He just knows she's a harlot and wants her. That's how base Judah was. His lust was so strong, he just knew she was a woman. He couldn't see her face. He probably, probably could not see the form of her body the way that it's described in verse 14. He just knew she was a woman, and that's all he wanted. Of course, he doesn't know who she is. And it's certainly the case that she kept her veil on. And however she spoke, in some way, she either disguised her voice or he didn't recognize her voice from beginning to end of this incident. So, 16, so he turned aside to her by the road and said, here now, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. Daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? Her question to him about what will you give me is normal. That's what the prostitutes ask. They ask for their wage, right? Well, she in this case doesn't really want the wage. She wants a son. She doesn't really care for the wage. We know that because she didn't stay there long enough for the young goat to be given to her. She walked away, went back home. She didn't really care about the money. She wanted the the offspring, the descendant, the son. 17. He said, therefore, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, moreover, what will you give? Will you give a pledge until you send it? Right. A pledge is necessary because it could easily be the case that the man could have his fun and then flee and never see her again. And she understands men and evil people. So that's why she's asking for a pledge. 18. And he said, what pledge shall I give you? And she said, your seal and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. 
So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. These three items are personal items, identifiable to the man, to the very person. His seal, his cord, and his staff. The seal would be a ring, a cord that he would wear on him, and his staff. Either the the staff that he would use for the sheep or something he used to to walk or to, to walk with wherever he went, perhaps to protect himself from uh, animals that he would see along the road, such as snakes or something. And so he goes into her and she conceived by him. 19, then she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments, which means she was not doing this because she was trying to uh, earn some dirty wages uh, and do it long term. She went solely for that one purpose, that is to meet Judah. Then, verse 20, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to receive the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of her place, saying, where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Anayim? But they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I did not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep them, lest we become a laughingstock. After all, I sent this young goat, but he did not, you, but you did not find her. Judah doesn't go back himself to show his face. He sends his friend, his friend, what friend, right? The friend who conspires, cooperates with him to do evil and did not warn him and advise him otherwise. His friend doesn't see her there. He asked the men of the place about the temple prostitute there and they said there's been no temple prostitute here. They are likely telling the truth because that location was not the place of prostitutes. It was not the place typical to find a prostitute. And they knew that. That's why that was just a short time, short enough that nobody else except Judah saw her there. The other men of the place, they didn't see her there. So when Hira goes back to Judah... Judah says, let her keep those pledges. And why? I did my duty, but she wasn't there. So I did my duty. I sent the young goat. So we'll just take it back. And besides, we don't want to become a laughingstock. We don't want people to laugh at us. We don't need people to know about it. We don't need to keep on asking and prodding and trying to figure out what happened. Because the more we do it, the more people are going to know that Judah fornicated, that Judah went to a prostitute. We don't need people to know that. So he's covering his shame with this. He's more concerned about what men think of him than what God thinks of him. Because if he was concerned about what God thinks of him, these incidents all the way up to verse 23 in Judah's life would not have occurred. 
He would not have married a Canaanitess. He would not have been a friend of this Hira, who is no friend because he's not giving him good advice. He's actually helping him commit sin. He wouldn't have lied about Shelah being given to his daughter-in-law. Also, perhaps, Er and Onan turned out to be the way they were because of Judah and Judah's wife. Probably the case. And then he would not have lusted this way with a woman who was completely covered. He lusted after her. He wouldn't have done that. And now he's only concerned about his reputation, not what God thinks. 24 to 26. Now it came about three months later that Judah was informed. Your daughter-in-law Tamar has played the harlot, and behold, she is also with child by harlotry. Then Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. Your daughter-in-law. We've seen this. Father-in-law, daughter-in-law. She played the harlot. She is with child. After three months, she would show, and everybody knew that she was residing in her father's house, unmarried, officially or formally, finally unmarried, legally married, but formally and actually unmarried. Therefore, if she is with child, she must have played the harlot. Right. Judah, when he hears this, he says, bring her out and let her be burned. Why? Because the death penalty by burning was the penalty for adultery, for the woman caught in adultery. That's why in Judah's time, in other places around the world also, but also in the law of Moses, Leviticus 21.9 and 20.14, we see the same about death by burning. Leviticus 21, verse 9. Also, the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father, she shall be burned with fire. And then in Leviticus 20, verse 14. If there is a man who marries a woman and her mother, it is immorality, both he and they shall be burned with fire, that there may be no immorality in your midst. The two are burned with fire in Leviticus 20, verse 14. In Genesis 38, Judah only says she should be burned without investigating. (laughs) Presumably, there should be an investigation and, and it looks like what happens in verse 25, 25 and 26, is a part of the investigation, a part of amassing the evidence before actually the execution. Right. First investigation and prosecution before execution. That, that's implied here. It's not that Judah says she should be burned, so let's just take her out and burn her to death. That's not the way it works. There is a process of investigation. Right. So it says in 
Um, also notice in 24, Judah says she should be burned, thinking himself guilt-free, that he's innocent and only she is guilty. We don't know who the man is, right? right. If we know who the man is, then burn both of them for committing adultery. By the way, why is this the penalty? Because it's adultery. And why is it adultery? Because they are legally married, though they have not actually come together as husband and wife. Remember, he is called father-in-law throughout, and she is called daughter-in-law throughout, even after she was a widow. And even between not being given to Shayla to this point, she's called daughter-in-law. A parallel to this would be Matthew 1, 18 to 25. You remember that Joseph was not yet formally or finally married to Mary, and yet Mary was with child, and Joseph wanted to divorce her even though he wasn't married to her yet. Well, legally they were married because they were engaged. So in this case also, legally they were engaged, Shelah and Tamar, legally engaged so that if she commits adultery during that engagement, it's considered adultery. And that's why the penalty was to be burned to death. Well, 25. It was while she was being brought out that she sent to her father-in-law saying, I am with child by the man to whom these things belong. And she said, Please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. She does it with indisputable evidence. Yeah. <laughs> with indisputable evidence. Now that it's public knowledge, all in public who have to investigate this have access to the evidence. That means that it's all in the open, it's all exposed, and Judah cannot do anything but now tell the truth. So, 26, And Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah, and he did not have relations with her again. He recognized he couldn't do otherwise in terms of asserting the truth. Further, he says, She is more righteous than I. Not to say that he was righteous and not to say that what she did to conceive was righteous. But her concern, her concern to marry Shelah is what he has in mind. All that he did to resist that was wrong and her desire to have him as husband was right. In that sense, she is more righteous than I. But he's not saying, and it could not be the case, that Judah was a righteous man and everything he did was righteous in the chapter. He doesn't mean that. He can't mean that. Further, he didn't have relations with her again. He did not marry her and he did not abuse her or exploit her. He let her be. Then she um, gives birth, 27 to 30. And it came about at the time she was giving birth that, behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. 
But it came about as he drew back his hand that, behold, his brother came out. Then she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez. And afterward his brother came out, who had the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was named Zerah. These two sons are born. The one with the scarlet thread is Zerah. However, an unusual circumstance happens. Zerah is about to come out, but then Perez comes out. He overtakes Zerah and comes out first, becomes the firstborn. Perez means a breach, and Zerah means brightness. A breach and brightness. The meaning of their names. Now, why is Perez important? He's important because of this. This is recorded, which shows his importance. But also later in Scripture, especially when we read in the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4, he is an ancestor of David and therefore an ancestor of Christ. The lineage of Christ does not go through Zerah, but through Perez. That's the significance. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.